Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Tuesday, April 6th. I'm Carolina Sarasa, and these are today's headlines. At least two people in critical condition following a shooting in a Maryland business park outside of Washington, D.C. The suspect is dead. With the trial of Derek Chauvin continuing, police officials take the stand to deny that the officer's actions against George Floyd were standard police procedure. In the surprise announcement, the White House moving up the date when all American adults can qualify to get the vaccine. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We began with a shooting at a Maryland business park earlier today that left two people in critical condition. According to officials, the suspect then drove to Fort Detrick, where he had a confrontation with personnel and was killed. According to the U.S. Navy, the suspect was a Navy medic. The victims were then flown by helicopter to Baltimore and are in critical condition. Police are investigating the incident. Meanwhile, the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin continues today. The prosecution has been focused on providing officer Chauvin used excessive force by kneeling on George Floyd's neck over nine minutes. This morning, the jury heard from the Minneapolis official in charge of training officers on crisis handling. That official identifying Chauvin from taking that intervention course four years ago. Let's listen to what he said. Does the Minneapolis Police Department, I'm assuming as the crisis training coordinator, you're aware of any training or tools that it provides law enforcement officers to um, abide by this policy? Yes. Does that include training officers to recognize uh, when persons may be in crisis? Yes. Some of the signs of crisis and types of crisis? Yes. And uh, there is a specific uh, crisis intervention training course that Minneapolis Police Department sponsors or, or puts on down at the training center, is that right? That is correct, yes. And in your role as coordinator, you bring the instructors in for that? That is correct. Do you know the, do you recognize the name Derek Chauvin? Yes. How do you recognize it? I recognize the name Derek Chauvin through training. And also this morning, Judge Peter Cahill delayed the testimony from Maurice Hall, George Floyd's friend who was in the car during the encounter with Officer Chauvin. Mr. Hall is invoking his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination in several key areas of questioning that we believe he would face were he to be called to testify. Now, the attorney for Derek Chauvin, Eric Nelson, has argued that the officer followed protocol, adding that it was Floyd's use of illegal drugs that killed him. And so far, the jury has heard from more than 20 witnesses. The Minneapolis police chief was one of the key witnesses to take the stand on Monday, testifying that Chauvin's restraint on George Floyd violated the department's policy. And Linares has the latest. Thank you, sir. Taking the stand, Minneapolis Police Chief Medaria Arredondo testifying against one of his own former officers. Arredondo rejecting the argument that former officer Derek Chauvin was following his training when he knelt on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes. It's not part of our training and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values. The police chief recalling when he first saw that tough to watch video of Chauvin on Floyd. A community member had contacted me and said, uh, Chief, uh, almost 
verbatim, but said, Chief, have you seen the video of your officer choking and killing that, that man? Arredondo telling jurors Chauvin should have stopped restraining Floyd once he was on the ground and clearly in distress. Later, during cross-examination, Chauvin's attorney, Eric Nelson, focused on the exact placement of Chauvin's knee, questioning whether it was on Floyd's neck the entire time. Would you agree that from the perspective of Officer King's body camera, it appears that Officer Chauvin's knee was more on Mr. Floyd's shoulder blade? Jurors also heard from the police inspector who managed the training program last year. That testimony also cutting at the heart of the defense's argument that Chauvin was following his training. I don't know what kind of improvised position that is. So that's not what we train. All right. While the police background was a focus Monday, so too was the medical, as the doctor who officially declared George Floyd dead took the stand. It's well known that any amount of time that a patient spends in cardiac arrest without immediate CPR um, markedly decreases the chance of a good outcome. Uh, approximately 10 to 15 percent decrease in survival uh, for every minute that CPR is not administered. By that testimony, Floyd's survivability would have decreased by roughly 40 percent. Prosecutors say as Chauvin continued to kneel on Floyd's neck for nearly four minutes after he appeared to lose consciousness. The doctor told prosecutors his leading theory on Floyd's cause of death was cardiac arrest by oxygen deficiency or asphyxia. The defense has pointed to drugs found in Floyd's system as the primary cause of death. There are many things that cause hypoxia that would still be considered asphyxiation. Agreed? Correct. Drug use. Certain drugs can cause hypoxia. Agreed? Yes. Specifically fentanyl? That's correct. How about methamphetamine? It can. And that is a key point of dispute in this trial. Prosecutors say Chauvin used lethal force against a handcuffed Floyd for more than nine minutes. However, the defense argues that Floyd, who suffered from heart disease, died of a heart arrhythmia complicated by drugs he ingested before his arrest. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News. And thank you, Andrea, for that report. And now to Washington, where President Joe Biden continues to push his massive infrastructure plan overnight. The president getting a boost from the Senate parliamentarian who approved the strategy allowing Democrats to advance bills with a simple majority. Edwin Pitti has the details from Washington, D.C. Edwin. Hi, Carolina, I can tell you the Democrats continue moving forward with plans to approve President Biden's $2.3 trillion infrastructure plan despite a lack of Republican support. And on Monday, their plan got a boost from the Senate parliamentarian by giving Democrats the green light to once again use the budget reconciliation process to approve legislation. As of now, no decision has been made regarding the use of the rule because the White House wants bipartisan support. Take a listen that some will believe that the package we proposed is too small, some will believe it's too big, uh, and we're happy to have discussions uh, with members who have both points of view. But at the end of the day, the package that the president proposed uh, makes a historic investment in our nation's infrastructure, rebuilds our economy, uh, helps create 19 million jobs. 
Republican lawmakers have expressed their opposition to any corporate tax hike. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said they're, and I quote, not going to do it unless there is a narrow plan focused on bridges and roads. Republican Senator Roy Blunt said this bill could be a bipartisan win in the Senate if the White House narrows its focus. This is what he had to say. Uh, my advice to the White House has been take that bipartisan win, uh, do this in a more traditional infrastructure way, and then if you want to force the rest of the package uh, on Republicans in the Congress and the country, you could certainly do that. You'd still have all the tools available for what is clearly going to turn out to be another purely partisan exercise. I, I think it's a big mistake for the administration. Former President Donald Trump lowered the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21 percent, and now Democrats want to raise it to 28 percent. That alone is already causing some Democrats to oppose the proposal. Democratic Senator from West Virginia Joe Manchin wants that hike to be 25 percent, while Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York says the proposal is not big enough. Meanwhile, President Biden is proposing a global corporate tax rate to prevent companies from relocating, but said there was no evidence that his proposed tax hike would drive companies away from the United States. We are reporting live in Washington, D.C. Back to you, Carolina. And thank you for the live report, Edwin Pitti, as always. And now let's go to Chris Liu. He's a former Obama White House Cabinet Secretary and a fellow and a senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. Thank you. Now, President Joe Biden wants to increase the corporate tax rate to pay for his infrastructure plan. Why are Republicans so opposed to this plan? Well, they're not opposed to the infrastructure, some of the traditional infrastructure parts of the plan, as you just heard from Senator Blunt. If the plan were limited to roads and bridges, they would probably support that. The challenge is always how do you pay for these? issues. And the Biden administration rightly is saying, look, the corporate tax rate has gone down more than it should have gone down. Uh, taxes for the very wealthy in this country have gone down more than they should have. If we want to start to make some of these important investments, not just in roads and bridges, but in waterways, in drinking water, uh, in school construction and broadband, we have to find a way to pay for that. That's the fiscally responsible way to do it. And that's why they've put together this big package of spending that is offset by tax increases. And I think the tax increases are obviously going to be a problem for Republicans. And now how challenging would it be to keep Democrats united on this? We have already seen some discord within the party. I think there will be some tinkering with the broad outlines of this bill. That's certainly always what happens in the legislative process. You know, whether the corporate tax rate goes back up to 28% or something else, or whether there's some additional spending uh, to satisfy progressive, that's just the way the process works. But I think in the end, some version of this package will go through. And it's important to understand it needs to go through because as President Biden has said, what we need to do right now is not just get back to the economy we had before the pandemic. We really need to build back better. We need to deal with some of these structural economic inequalities, as well as decades and decades of underinvestment in infrastructure. And this underinvestment makes us not competitive with other countries around the world. And now, Chris, now to another major political story we have also been following. Florida Congressman Matt Gates says he will not resign over allegations that he had sex with a minor. How do you see all this playing out? 
it's obviously a very serious allegation and it's being looked at right now by federal prosecutors and that process needs to play out and it's certainly not surprising that the congressman is being defiant about this what is interesting is how few people from uh, the trump world have rallied to his defense and i think they rightly understand that these allegations if true are devastating to the congressman's political career that being said he does still enjoy support in his congressional district. Again, not a surprise at all, just given the way that so many congressional districts are gerrymandered. Most members of Congress have relatively safe seats. And I think barring something extraordinary coming out about Congressman Gates, he'll probably still stay in office. And finally, Chris, before you go, let's talk about Georgia's new voting law. Major corporations are taking a stand against, new, against these new bills. But some Democrats are warning these companies to stay out of politics. Do you think corporate pressure could help stop some of these new measures? I think what's notable here is how uniform the corporate outrage is about this. Last week, about 200 major companies in the United States expressed concern, not just what's happening in Georgia, but in Texas, and really states all around the country where there's been a strong movement to restrict voting rights. And it's important to understand that the fundamental basis of these voter suppression laws is a lie, which is the idea that the 2020 election was somehow fraudulent, somehow Donald Trump really did win re-election. Once you get to the facts that it was the fairest, uh, safest election we've had, it just goes to show how much of this has become really this part of this broader political conspiracy theory happening around the country. Uh, companies rightly understand that they want our democracy to work, and that's why they're weighing in not just in Georgia, but all around the country right now. Well, thank you so much, Chris Liu, Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center, for your time as always. Thank you. And now Coors Field in Denver, home of Major League Baseball's Colorado Rookies, is expected to be announced, announced as this year as the new host of this year's All-Star Game. As we just noted, the game was initially supposed to take place in Atlanta, but the league decided to move the game in draft in response to Georgia's recently passed laws that placed new restrictions on voting. Meanwhile, Texas Governor Greg Abbott declined to throw the first ceremonial first pitch at Monday's Texas Rangers game because of that decision. A new vaccination push by the Joe Biden administration, the president expected to announce all adults nationwide will have access to a vaccine sooner than planned. Meanwhile, cases continuing to rise, especially amongst kids. And now Dr. Anthony Fauci saying sports are likely causing those trends. Lorraine Casares has more details. The Biden administration speeding things up again. The president expected to announce a new deadline for all adults in the U.S. to have access to the vaccine, moving it up to April 19th instead of May 1st. The White House feeling confident with supply despite 15 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine getting ruined at a plant in Baltimore. We are still on track to have the number of doses we need to vaccinate all adult Americans by the end of May. This was not even a facility that was approved by the FDA. So we were not betting on these doses. We were betting on doses coming from Moderna, Pfizer, and also Johnson & Johnson has assured us that we will be getting the 24 million doses that they have promised in April. 
According to the CDC, more than 40% of adults and 75% of seniors have received at least one dose. On average, more than 3 million vaccine doses are being administered each day. And according to data analysis by Bloomberg, it should take three more months to cover 75% of the population, making the U.S. the first nation to reach herd immunity. But in the meantime, the country is in a race against the virus. The worst thing we could do right now would be to mistake progress for victory. COVID deaths are now rising in at least 18 states. Hospitalizations are up in 16 states with a 23% jump in the upper Midwest. We know that these increases are due in part to more highly transmissible variants, which we are very closely monitoring. The CDC warning cases are climbing among adults and children who are less likely to be vaccinated at this point. Just in the last two weeks in Minnesota, we've had over 749 schools in our state where kids with B117 or COVID-19 in general were actually found to, to be in school. And so what we're having happen right now is kind of a perfect storm, bad bug, Lots of opportunity for transmission. Meanwhile, states and cities opening up for business as usual. D.C. announcing its relaxing restrictions starting May 1st. As we continue to increase our vaccination rates, uh, we uh, expect the following activities will reopen or dial up on May 1. Seated live entertainment such as theaters will be allowed uh, to operate indoors and outdoors at 25 capacity with a cap of 500. Um, movie theaters will be able to operate at 25% capacity. Live music will be allowed um, at restaurants for outdoor seating. The Texas Rangers now making headlines after packing their stadium with nearly 40,000 fans on opening night. You know, a few thousand at a time, but to just start right off, just essentially pulling the plug I'm a bit concerned about that. I mean, they're taking a chance. It's risky. I hope we don't see any deleterious consequences of that. And with cases rising among children, Dr. Anthony Fauci is now saying that due to tracking, they know that school sports is what's driving the spread. He says that kids are with each other for hours in close contact and many times without a mask. Meanwhile, a new model published in the journal JAMA of Pediatrics is reporting that about 40,000 children have now lost a parent due to COVID-19. In Miami, Lorraine Caceres, U News. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report from Miami. And now, when it comes to vaccines, at least five U.S. colleges and universities have announced plans to require students to be fully vaccinated before returning to campuses in the fall. Students who attend Cornell University, Rutgers University, Nova Southeastern University, and many others will have to be fully vaccinated before returning to campus with limited exemptions for underlying medical conditions and religious beliefs. The announcements come as data shows college students being a significant spreader of this virus. And back at the White House, the Biden administration has selected Gail Smith to serve as the coordinator for global COVID response and health security. Smith helped lead the Obama administration's Ebola response and says she's ready to take on this new job. Officials say the administration gets more confident about vaccine supply domestically, and now they're looking at options for sharing vaccines with other countries.
The Supreme Court dismissed a ruling that Donald Trump violated the First Amendment when he blocked followers from his Twitter account. Yesterday, the high court ruled the case is no longer valid because Trump is no longer in office. A district court had initially ruled that Trump blocking Twitter followers excluded them from the public forum. And an appeals court agreed. Twitter banned the former president from its sites after the election due to violating its policies related to the capital. Hill riot. In related news, one of the country's top judges wants to see better regulations of social media. In a 12-page opinion, Justice Clarence Thomas suggested Congress should consider laws to update how platforms control speech. Some conservatives have called for more regulations in the tech world to combat what they view as political bias on social media. No other justice joined Thomas' opinion. The New York Times is reporting that the Trump campaign had to refund $64 million in donations. The reason many Trump supporters thought they were making a one-time donation to the campaign, only to find out later that they were in fact making multiple donations. According to the Times, the Trump campaign donation site misled donors with confusing language and deceptive practices. Rafael Rodriguez has more details. I was mad. I was sure it was some sort of a scam. Last September, Russ Blatt's brother Stacy contributed $500 to the Trump campaign. Within a month, Stacy Blatt was bouncing checks. His bank account drained. We saw the six withdrawals of $500 totaling $3,000 that had been taken from his account uh, starting in mid-September. And over the course of a month, it they took $3,000. Russ had become his brother's financial power of attorney due to his brother's failing health. The Blatts realized only then that Stacy was signed up to make recurring donations to the Trump campaign. Stacy Blatt died of cancer in February. They just kept taking money out until there was no money left. And Stacy was not alone. A New York Times investigation revealing the alarming extent and reach of a calculated Trump campaign scheme to get supporters signed up for recurring donations by default, and later adding a second pre-checked box to double a donor's contribution. According to the Times, the Trump campaign internally called it, quote, a money bomb, a tactic that experts say is intentionally designed to be easily overlooked. When supporters contributed online, a yellow box to make a recurring donation came pre-checked, requiring donors who wanted to make a one-time contribution to opt out. And it wasn't easy to spot. He didn't remember seeing anything like that. He thought he was giving a one-time $500 donation. It seemed like it was deceitful. Thousands overlooked it, and the Trump campaign ran with it. In the fall or the late summer, as the Trump campaign faced financial pressures, they made a really important change, which is they took that box, and instead of taking donations out every month, they began taking them out every week. Banks and credit card companies have been flooded with calls from donors, The Times reports, leading the Trump campaign and the RNC to refund a massive amount of money. The New York Times reporting that from the period of mid-October to December of 2020, the Trump campaign and the RNC made more than 530,000 refunds, amounting to $64 million. By comparison, the Biden campaign and the DNC refunded 37000 thousand donations, amounting to $5.6 million. We did very well with the fundraising stuff, but a lot of it came in small donations. 
The boost of money that came with the recurring donations came when President Trump was in need of it the most, just weeks before the election and short on cash. So that money that they took from donors through recurring donations really does add up functionally to being a de facto loan with no interest from their own supporters. And it was refunded only after the election, when the campaign used money they collected to fight baseless claims of election fraud. Rafael Rodriguez, U News. More of U News after the short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. And as we first reported yesterday, LexisNexis, the internet research firm, signed a contract worth more than $16 million to provide eyes with information. Now, that move is sounding the alarm amongst pro-immigrant activists who fear the federal agency will use that information to identify and prosecute undocumented immigrants. Aileen Cardet has more details. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, now has one of the most extensive domestic databases of personal information. After signing a multi-million dollar contract with LexisNexis, this development has immigrant advocates extremely concerned. This is a deliberate act by the agency to expand the resources they have available to continue harming the immigrant community. The contract was signed in late February, according to documents viewed by The Intercept, and provides ICE with millions of records containing personal data from public and private sources, including credit history, license plate, and cell phone subscriber information. It is almost impossible in these days to protect personal information from LexisNexis, and they are going to give it to ICE. ICE did not respond to our questions about the agreement. Before signing the contract, the agency had unveiled its new deportation priorities that would focus its efforts on apprehending and deporting undocumented immigrants who are a danger to national security and public safety, and those apprehended at the border. This former ICE director in the Obama administration tells us that these type of contracts are common at the government level and that in this case, the information is for specific use. They are the investigators who are actually looking for the criminal cases and not so much the officers who are looking for immigrants to deport. Aileen Cardet, Yunus. Meanwhile, along the border, two men from Yemen who are on the FBI's terrorism watch list were arrested at the U.S.-Mexico border this year. U.S. Border Patrol released the information on Monday. The first arrest happened in January near the Calexico port of entry in California. Agents say they took a 33-year-old unidentified man into custody. The second arrest occurred on March 30th. The 26-year-old unidentified man was apprehended near the same 
Maine Border Patrol Station. The two men are being held in federal custody. Both men were also on the no-fly list. And court monitors say border facilities holding unaccompanied minor children are profoundly overcrowded and, quote, stretch beyond thin. Before the election, the capacity at the Donna facility was 500. Since March, it has climbed up to more than 4,000. These court monitors say that makes social distancing impossible under the circumstances. About 2,500 of the children have been in custody longer than the 72-hour legal limit, and some have been there several weeks. And on Tuesday, officials released a photograph of the two young children who were seen drop over the border fence in New Mexico by, smog by smugglers last week. A Customs and Border Protection spokesperson said they are in CBP custody and are in good health. The two rescue girls, ages three and five, are from Ecuador. The children are awaiting transfer to Health and Human Services custody to then be reunited with family or sponsors. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.